The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. This morning we had our quarterly community gathering and potluck, and once a quarter we take some time to look at this ancient ritual in Buddhism called the taking of the refuges and precepts. And this has been done since the time of the Buddha. And it's a way of um, taking refuge, some symbolic or intuitive way, depending on our own experience. We practice formally as a community or on, a, on our own, taking refuge in the awakened mind. Or as Ajahn Tomato sometimes say, says, awakenness. We take refuge in that. Instead of taking refuge in dullness, or distractedness, or aversion, or greediness, we take refuge in the awakened state of the mind, the mind that is open, clear, bright, relaxed, accepting. So this balanced state of mind, from my experience, and from many of yours, I'm sure, is something that's truly a refuge, something we can trust. And then we take the five Buddhist precepts for lay people, which all revolve around non-harming, a commitment to non-harming. It's as if, you know, with this ritual, with this practice, and then expressed to our daily life, we're getting married to this resolve, this training in non-harming. It's really a, a resolve to train in non-harming. Whether or not we ever end up being able to live a life where we're not harming other living beings, isn't important. It's a commitment to do what we can do to understand more and more deeply how to live in a way where we don't harm ourselves or others. And so once a quarter, we do this ancient ritual together. It's basically a recitation that takes 10 minutes. And this morning, I talked about non-harming. I thought I'd just share some of the, the thoughts, reflections that I gave this morning, and then open it up for discussion. This is such an important part of the awakening process. So these two values of, you know, the value of awakeness or this open, clear, bright, relaxed, balanced attention, waking up to the way it is, and this value, this training and non-harming, these are two values that probably nobody, I mean, it's so easy for us to argue, you know, to have different opinions, but it wouldn't be easy for human beings to have an argument around these two principles or values. I mean, who among us doesn't have this value, this respect for mindfulness or for this commitment, this training, and non-harming? It, it uh, resonates deeply for most of us, this commitment to non-harming, this respect for mindful awareness. I was reflecting this morning how uh, if we look deeply, if we just start observing the mind, our mind and those minds around us, we'll see coming up at different times this very powerful, um, almost archetypal desire, wholesome desire really, for safety. And it's not, you know, we can intuit it also in animals, so in other animals, not just human beings, but other animals also seem to have this deep desire to be safe, 
avoiding what's scary, moving in the direction of safety. And I think it's really useful to reflect on that because it's part, you know, part of being awake and part of taking refuge in wakefulness and that open, clear, honest presence is uncovering this underlying desire. You know, when our life is going well or when we're just distracted, we may not notice it. But when we're more honest or when we bump up against difficulty in life, we'll be more clear about this deep, resonant desire to be safe, to be protected. And the more we're in touch with that, and ideally we'd be living living with awareness of this deep desire to be safe. So the more I'm in touch with it, the more I realize, in a sense, you know, there's this frightened, vulnerable little boy, little child, you know, in me, right? That never goes away. We, our bodies get bigger. We even get some gray hair and uh, even become feeble. But the little child doesn't disappear. It gets overlaid with other emotional, mental patterns that we call mature. But the child is still there, the frightened, vulnerable child, the person, the being, the creature that wants to be safe, still there. We should be able to intuit it or feel it or see it or know it. And the more I'm in touch with that, then the more easy it is for me to look around this room or any place, look at my mom or look at my sister or look at my brother or my partner or my friend or some stranger and cut through all the projection I might have about that person and see that this is also a living being that deeply desires to be safe. And we can just have that sense in the room now that everybody here likely shares this deep, resonant desire to be safe. And just because someone's not aware of that desire doesn't mean that that desire isn't there. It just means, you know, we may be distracted. I caught in some deluded notion that I am safe. <laughs> when the fact is, you know, as long as we're alive, we're not safe. I keep hearing amazing stories. Uh, someone in our family, our extended family, was skiing with his son in Vail, and all of a sudden, he had this tremendous pain. He had enough sense to get to the hospital. He had this huge aneurysm, that bleeding in his body. I don't know, several pints of blood he lost, almost died. Still don't know why that happened. Healthy guy, about my age. You know, there are many, many of these stories. This isn't unusual. You know, the more people we know, the more obvious it is that our safety, we can't, there's no guarantee for our safety. This is why it's such a poignant desire. We desire something that actually, in a way, isn't available. But one of the reasons it's useful to reflect on it, it brings up this, uh, this resolve to live in a way where we're not harming ourselves or others. You know, the more I get the sense of this desire to be safe, the more I'm going to be careful. It's like a reverence for life. We respect life. We know we can't protect life ultimately, this life or any life. But because it's precisely because life is vulnerable and fragile that there's this deep reverence for it, deep respect for it. 
and it goes beyond ourselves. It's not limited like I just care about my life. In fact, it'd be interesting to look. Is it possible to have a deep reverence for our life without having it extend on to other people? Or is it possible to have this commitment not to harm ourselves, but to feel okay about harming others? I mean, I know people live that way, but it's easy, you know, how it's easy to be in a bubble where we're not really reflecting deeply about our actions and the consequence and the integrity of our view of things. Does it actually make sense to have reverence for this life but not reverence for another life? I mean, how would that make sense? Like, this life is really valuable, but your life isn't. I know it. We do it all the time. I mean, and this is what I meant before, too, about the nature of life itself puts us in this very awkward position where we feel like we're choosing my well-being and therefore taking away from your well-being. I mean, if we eat living creatures, and you could argue that plants are also living creatures, you know, then we're making this, we're in this sticky, messy business all the time. My well-being is worth you know, taking from your well-being. But again, the in terms of Buddhist ethics or this integrity, it's really starting with this place of respect for safety and uh, commitment to non-harming. Commitment to non-harming is different than somehow not harming. So that's the art. Like, how can we live in a world where we are stepping on ants or eating in ways that cause harm? How can we live in that world and still be deeply committed to this training and not harming? See, what the, the conditioned mind wants, it, it's lazy in a sense. It doesn't want to be awake. It just wants answers so it can dull out or space out or get into some blind routine. I don't have to think about it. Because it seems like it takes a lot of effort to be awake. But actually, surprisingly maybe, it takes more effort to be distracted and in denial than it takes to be awake, to be alert. And this is another way to just hold this whole training that uh, Part of training in non-harming, and I mentioned earlier these two values of non-harming and wakefulness and how they support each other, it's precisely this commitment to the training in non-harming that really uh, relies on wakefulness. Because it's not like we can, okay, I'll be a vegan or I'll, I'll be a uh, conscientious objector or I'll, you know, whatever give money to Amnesty International once a year. You know, whatever we tell ourselves that we might do to sort of demonstrate our commitment to non-harming, but that's not enough. That's just that's that strategy I was talking about where we, we do something and then we feel like, oh, okay, now I don't have to deal with it because I did this. I made this commitment. But we want to really, the whole point is to stay alive, to use the training in non-harming to inspire a more continuous mindful presence in life. 
And of course, the con more continuous mindful presence helps us understand how impossible it is to perfect the training in non-harming, right? Because we see how interdependent everything is, how difficult in a world where life eats life, it's not easy to live and not with non-harming. So they support each other. The understanding of what non-harming is deepens as we become more mindful. As our understanding of what non-harming is, we're, we're more reliant on mindful, the continuity of mindfulness in life. So it's like an engine leading onward toward awakening and freedom, a more profound compassion, more profound wisdom in life. And this becomes a natural process. And this is why we, we practice committing to non-harming and to wakefulness. One of the ways the Buddha would talk about this commitment to non-harming, this undertaking the training to refrain from harming living beings, to refrain from killing living beings. You know, it's easy, it's amazing even, how we you know, immediately want to define what that means. Living beings, okay, well, I don't kill anybody. Well, what, what might that mean? You know, not killing, not harming. What does that mean in terms of the choices we make, the consumption choices we make, the eating choices we make? Not so much even what we do, but what we don't do. Like, what aren't we doing? Are we condoning killing by not saying anything? Con condoning harming by not saying anything? So the more we make this commitment, we start to trust our heart. You know, trust this instinct for safety and this commitment to not harming. We really begin to trust our heart and we start to feel some joy. It's like we're inspired by this commitment to not harming, this work. It gives our life some integrity. You know, we often talk in Western psychological circles, we talk about self-esteem, sense of self-worth, but where does this actually come from? Where where do we get this wholesome feeling of what in the West we call self-esteem? But maybe in Buddhist circles we call it something like um, joy, or sense the joy, or I think the Buddha refers to it as the bliss of blamelessness. Where does it come from? It comes from when we go to bed at night with that, there's that phrase, you know, the rest, the sleep of the righteous, you know, I don't know, I don't really, I'm not sure that word righteous is the right word for us in this context, but it's close. This idea that, you know, when in our quiet moments, when we're falling asleep at night, when we're alone, we're not haunted by the choices we've made in life. We're not haunted by our distractedness, like all the mistakes we've made not because we were being evil, but because we were neglectful. We weren't paying close attention to the consequences of the choices we make in life. And so the more that we do become awake, mindful, full of careful concern about our choices, our actions, our words, 
the more we feel enlivened by that care. It's not like, I know initially it might feel like a heavy burden. You, what do you mean? I've got to pay attention. You know, I've got to be thinking now when I'm buying this, what are the ripple effects? Or when I'm making this choice or when I'm choosing not to be involved in this social justice issue, what are the you know, reverberations of that? We can imagine that it's a really heavy load. But remember, it's a training and not harming. And part of what we're practicing not harming is ourselves. It's not like we exclude taking care of ourselves in order to take care of everybody else. We're equally interested in not harming for everybody. And we have a special responsibility for those who are close. And there's nobody closer than this life right here for me. So my commitment to non-harming first and foremost involves myself and then a concentric circle out. So we're not neglectful of even the widest circle, but clearly the first thing I'm going to notice is if my actions, my attitudes are harming myself. And then I'll, I'll do my best to address that. I'll bring you know my wakeful, mindful, wise presence creative presence to try to address any harm that I see. Like I mentioned earlier, it's easy to want, well, just, you know, somebody to tell us, just tell me, okay, what does it mean not to harm? You know, is it okay to eat this kind of food? Is it okay to do this? Is it okay to go be a tourist in a place in a country that doesn't have much money? Or is that, you know, is that harmful? Is it not harmful? So the best way is to just look at our mind carefully. So whether we go or don't go, we're just observing the mind. Is the, are the attitudes in the mind destructive in some way? Or are they throwing something out of our heart, somebody out of our heart? It's easy in this uh, training in non-harming, it's easy to try too hard, and then we tend to slide over into giving up. You know, I just don't want to deal with it. And we'd rather take the road of distraction. And then that doesn't feel good. That's not enlivening. So then we, in a sense, will rush back to this maybe self-righteous commitment to non-harming, but we'll take it up in a heavy way and then we'll reject it and take it up and reject it. So one of the things to reflect on tonight for yourself is how might each of us cultivate a wholesome, enlivening relationship to this commitment to not harming? Like, what would be a place to begin? Where might we begin to reflect? And to, re and to really position it or hold it as something that's enlivening for us. You know, it's a cause for joy. This work, this training and not harming, it isn't this heavy should and God will somehow strike us down if we don't do a good job or throw us in hell for a long time if we don't do a good job. But really see it as a way of cultivating happiness for ourselves and others. Setting in motion beautiful things for ourselves and others. So then it's like, but then it becomes something, well, why wouldn't we be interested in this commitment to not harming? 
I mean, it's like it's a commitment to happiness through the reflection on non-harming, the training in non-harming. How many really authentically kind and generous people do you know that are deeply unhappy? I mean, it's really a no-brainer. When we think about it in the correct way, when we reflect on it deeply, it makes a lot of sense. Or how many people who are deeply greedy and willing to harm do you know that are happy? Or people that you uh, would like to emulate, be like? We don't want to be like those people if we think about it carefully. There's a famous discourse from the time of the Buddha where he was teaching his son. Uh, some of you know the story, the legend of the Buddha. You know, as a historic person, evidently, as much as we know, he was born into a, a wealthy family. They were the leaders of this clan, um, sort of a little fiefdom in northern India at the time, near the Himalaya Mountains. And uh, so the Buddha was raised as a prince of this little fiefdom and had everything he wanted and eventually got married and had a son. And that's at that time he, he became very interested in the spiritual life. So he left home and his young son which is sort of a surprising, shocking thing maybe to think about, leaving behind your wife and newborn son. But eventually, as a teacher, as a monk and teacher, he came back through the town where he had lived as a young man and child and uh, taught the people of his family. And at some point, his wife, his former wife, said to his son, Rahula, see that man? He's your father. Go claim your inheritance. So this six-year-old boy goes up to the Buddha and repeats what his mother said. And the Buddha said, okay, come along. And the Buddha made him a novice monk at a young age. And he traveled with the other monks. And about a year later, as a novice, the Buddha gave him this teaching. He said to his son, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? For reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Or would it be an, uh, would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If, on reflection, you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if, on reflection, you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful body, bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any bodily action of that sort is fit for you to do. And then he says, you know, the same thing, not just before you do it, but while you're doing it, you should be reflecting. Is this going to cause me or others harm? And not just before and during, but after you've done something, 
you should be reflecting. Did this cause myself harm or others harm? And not just with bodily actions, but verbal actions. He says the same thing with, around verbal actions. You know, before you speak, while you're speaking, after you speak, you should be reflecting. And not just with bodily actions and verbal actions, but even mental actions, thinking. Before you think about something, you should be asking, reflecting. Is this going to be causing affliction for myself or others? While you're thinking, after you're thinking. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty rigorous request by the Buddha. But this is, he's really pointing to mindfulness. Now initially, mindfulness appears to be a lot of work. But at some point, just through insight, just through cultivating mindfulness, we begin to have this intuition from this initial idea that being awake, being present, is a lot of work, to being mindful is the most natural thing. Now, this is a pretty dramatic change. I, I certainly don't claim to be living in a way where mindfulness is always effortless, but I have experienced in my practice that mindfulness is, in fact, effortless, ultimately. But the reason it has the appearance of being a lot of work is because of the momentum of our habits to be distracted and to be reactive to experience. It's not that mindfulness takes a lot of work, but the mind, because of habit, constantly gets pulled into reactive patterns, distracted patterns, patterns of denial, patterns of being disconnected. So to have that ongoing reflection so that there's that natural, wise presence, so if we're about to speak or about to act or about to think, without any effort whatsoever, that mindful presence is there recognizing that about two moments and, in a sense, tasting it or intuiting what it's about. Is it a contracted about to, like I'm about to do something that is contracted, that's harmful, or is it an expansive, free quality of mind? And we know, like, we have moments where we're about to say something to a friend, and it's like we get a sense that it's coming from a really fearful or angry place. And, and it's like that wisdom just kicks in where we know, well, this isn't could to set emotion, and we restrain ourselves. It's really a place in life for restraint. But that restraint happens naturally when wisdom is there. Just like, you know, we don't get too close to a dangerous animal when we know it's there. But if we don't know the dangerous animal is there, we're not going to be able to practice restraint. I mean, when you see the poisonous snake, you immediately take a few steps back. I was once meditating, some of you know Mount Diablo, just east of San Francisco, about, I don't know, 40 miles, 50 miles or so. Still now kind of in the suburbs of the Bay Area. Back in the, I lived in the Bay Area in the um, mid-80s, and um, I was meditating up on Mount Diablo. It's a maybe a state park, I forget, but anyway, it's a park at the top of the mountain. I was just sitting there, and uh, I opened my eyes, and I was, you know, pretty quiet, my body was so quiet, and I opened my eyes, and I was sitting, I think, on the ground, and there was a rattlesnake coming right at me. <laughs> I mean, and when I opened my eyes, it was just, 
five or seven feet away at the most. And I don't know how I went from a cross-like sitting position to standing a few feet back, but I did. <laughs> and it was all instinct. There was no thought, you know, because I immediately recognized the danger and responded. And that's how wisdom works. It didn't, it wasn't any kind of self-effort to get myself some distance from that snake. It just happened. And it's the same way when we're reflecting, what the Buddha means by reflecting, when we're mindfully aware, wisdom and sensitivity operating together, then the mind, the heart, whatever you want to call it, it just responds based on the wisdom of that open, clear presence. It drops. If we're about to do something, it prevents us from doing it. If we're already doing it, it takes the best exit from that unskillful behavior, that harmful behavior. If we've already done it, we confess it. We make amends. We do what we can do to repair the damage that's been done. And that all can happen effortlessly. And this is really important to understand, even if we have to take it as uh, take it as faith right now, that being skillful, undertaking the training of non-harming, ultimately can be an, uh, an, express, an expression of effortless wisdom. It's not this huge burden, this big cross we bear. Because I'm a spiritual person, I'm practicing non-harming, and all you other earthly grubs, you can act out the way you want, but I'm going to take the noble, righteous road, carry my heavy cross up the steep mountain of life. <laughs> and, it, and it just feels like it's the hard way. But it's not, it's the easy way. Not, not Commitment to non-harming and wakeful presence is not the hard way. It's the easy way. The whole reason we're cultivating this path is because it is the easy way. It is the beautiful way to live. We all want to be happy. We all want to be safe. And the question is, does living a life where we justify harming others or harming ourselves, does it actually lead to the life we want to be living? Does distraction lead to the life we want to be living, to any kind of resonant happiness or safety? I mean, just be pragmatic. Look. And if you don't believe, you're, you know, just try it. I had this teacher once. And he ran a very large spiritual organization and, you know, where people would live. I lived there for a number of years. And, uh, and he would often say to people, you know, if you don't want to live with these trainings, it's be better than sitting here and resisting the teachings and the trainings that are being offered. Go back into the world or the, you know, not this place and live the way you want to live, but just pay close attention to see whether it delivers any kind of resonant happiness for you. Because at least you'll be learning. You know, when, we're, when we take up you know, a particular path but then refuse to do it, we don't really learn. We sort of complain about the burden of the path, but we're not getting any fruit because we're not practicing. So all we have is doubt because it feels like it's not working, but it's not working because we haven't sincerely taken up the training. So if we want to see if non, this commitment to non-harming and this commitment to wakefulness works, we actually have to pick it up. If you don't want to pick it up, then pick up the opposite, you know. Be willing to cause harm. Be willing to live a life of distraction. 
but at least pay enough attention to see if it's working for you, if it leads to any kind of resonant happiness. So at least you get a sense if it's a, you know, an authentic path. It's leading, it's leading in the way you want to go. I'll just end by, you know, having this sense, uh, reminding us of this sense that it isn't easy, as I've mentioned. I mean, all of us, you know, in order to cultivate, train, and non-harming, we have to become very clear, intimate with the way our mind is conditioned. As sexual beings, we have these strong attraction to each other, or to some people at least, right? And it and it brings out all sorts of like uh, competition and all sorts of justifications for behaviors. We have this deep need for security. And where is the end of security? Like when is our house big enough or apartment big enough or car big enough or bank account big enough or muscles big enough or beauty, you know, deep enough, great enough. So this is the thing about security. Where do we get secure in an insecure world? It just keeps going. So we have to appreciate this predicament, how messy it is, this training. But remember, it isn't about perfection. It's about uncovering the joy of integrity, something that the heart trusts. We trust awareness. We trust not harming. And this path leads to insight that really transforms how we are in the world. So I'll leave it here. So we have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice. I'm sure there over the years of people here in this room, we collective or cumulatively have learned a lot around non-harming, either by making mistakes, causing harm for ourselves and others, or being skillful at times. So what can you distill from your life experience around non-harming, around the commitment to non-harming, and around the relationship between non-harming and awareness, mindful awareness? And of course, any questions you might have about the talk tonight? So what comes to mind? Yeah, please say your name. Um, I heard basically the same teaching from another teacher where I've taken other courses, and he talks about um, the physical, the verbal, and the mental. And he says that long before you take physical action against somebody or verbal action against somebody, you have mental anger that has arisen in you, and at that very moment you begin suffering because you are no longer mindful and you are, for some reason, choosing to be angry with this person. And that always precedes the verbal and the physical actions that you take against someone. And therefore, the mental action is actually the most harmful to you. Well, it's more harmful because it gets practiced a lot. It's also the easiest place to, to abandon or to make a different choice. Once we're already saying out loud or physically doing something, in a way, it's uh, probably through the process of cognitive dissonance. If we find ourselves doing something, then there's a very strong sense that I should be doing it. 
because it's just too embarrassing or humiliating to somehow realize I shouldn't be doing something once I've gone that far into action or talked about it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Steve. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I, a couple of things that I was wondering, uh, I, I, um, one thing, uh, like, it doesn't seem to me like the non-harming thing is, is in any way a physical thing, or at least, like, being careful of, uh, But, well, but the thing is, we have to, you know, part of mindfulness isn't just being, like, seeing the empty nature of experience. That's just half of the practice. The other half of the practice is understanding the interdependent nature of things, so that our actions, our words, our thoughts have consequences. So this is an important part of practice, and it's often a shadow in people who practice uh, Buddhism or with these ideas that uh, are in Buddhism is a sense that because things are fundamentally empty, that our actions don't have consequences. There was a great saint who, back about a thousand years ago, who brought uh, Buddhism to Tibet, Padmasambhava. He has this great line where he says, although my view is as vast as the sky, so he's saying he has a lot of insight into emptiness, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. And this is really important to understand. And you'll, if, you, if you follow Buddhism in the West and probably in the East too, there are a lot of people, you know, teachers or people with evidently a lot of insight, who knows, that have done a lot of what I would call stupid things, whether around money, around sex, around power. And it's often this confusion, I think, about emptiness, where there's a sense that it's all just, you know, impersonal stuff happening, and then the ego can get confused by that insight and feel, well, then I can do whatever I want. I can take this even though it's not mine, or I can do this because it's just things happening, just causes and conditions and personal. So this is the real art and practice is to have insight how things are impersonal and still be willing to live in this relative world where there are living beings who want to be safe and to take responsibility for this, but not be burdened by the responsibility, actually to be enlivened by that responsibility. Yeah, other thoughts, people? Yeah, if it's quick, but I want to make time for other people, too. Yeah, like, like that reminds me, there's a certain branch of Buddhism where they, like, hold, like, Jainists, or Jainists, or Jainists. No, but that's not Buddhism. Where they won't eat anything, like, fruit, and and stuff. You see, like, you go way too quick to that. That whole thing, and just those things, it's like, it's not, yeah, like, that's like, a lot of the sort, but it's just getting it, I mean, it's just ordinary energy, you know, I don't know, it's like, where do you make the distinction, if you're really talking about the spirit of it, 
But we, but we don't want, yeah, yeah, I think your point's right. Yeah. yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think that's a good point. Other thoughts? Yeah. Say your name? Christina. Um, I Yeah, that's good. I good that you bring it up, Christina. Because here's the thing, like think about some of those areas in your life where you feel like you, you have or want to forgive yourself, like you, you did something that was hurtful and you want to forgive yourself. See, that when we've made a, a, a real mistake where we've caused harm, it's in a sense it's like a wound. Now we think that the forgiveness will remove the wound and in a way, what it removes is the present moment self-hatred. But the fact that we've harmed somebody remains as a wound. But these wounds are teachers. They're not, they don't have to be a problem. They feel like a problem when we hate ourselves because we did something stupid. But if we forgive ourselves, then we no longer hate ourselves for it. But we still feel the wound. It still hurts that I did that back when. But now the pain, in a way, it feels good. It's like a road sign. Honey, don't do that again. Now think about all those places where we have forgiven ourselves. I mean, hopefully, the stupid things you did as a teenager, you've forgiven yourself for. Because it's easy, relatively easy, to think back, well, I was just a teenager. I was stupid. Or I was confused. Or I was dealing with a lot of hormones or whatever. I... I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, for me, with a lot of reflection, it took me a lot of time, a few events in my teenage years, it took me a long time to forgive myself for, to really process the pain. But those experiences, those actions, still have power in my life. I still feel the, uh, the harm. But it makes me more careful. And this is talked about the, in Buddhism, you know, they make it very clear. It's called hiriotapa, this wholesome concern and wholesome regret from our past actions. And it's a living dynamic in our heart, in our mind. This, and so even when we forgive ourselves, the pain of our past actions still lives on in our heart. But now it's like pure information. You know, that's what that pain is. It's just a reminder, like, don't get too close to that action. Don't get too close to that edge. You might fall over and do something terrible. Yeah, thanks, Christina, for bringing that up. Yeah, so your name? My name is Melissa. Uh, I just got to read a book by Alice Miller, like a Never be forgiven, ever. This person should never be forgiven. 
Define forgiveness for us. Like, how do you see it? Well, forgiveness is the same, like, yes, I mean, the issue of intervening, you know, a bad person to the action. Define forgiveness is when I like if you did something that I thought was hurtful to me and I decided to forgive you. It's really uh, an insight. The mind is recognizing I don't want to be the person that resents you or hates you anymore. I'm ready. Let me just finish. I, I want. I'm really ready to put that down. So like my forgiving you isn't saying your action was okay. It's just saying I don't want to maintain my negative towards you anymore. Well, it's just a matter of, I'm just saying how I define it. So but that, that's what I mean by forgiveness, is getting rid of the negativity. So you might have a different definition of what forgiveness is, but that's what forgiveness is, is we're getting, we're, we can't change the person, but what we can do is we can recognize that this uh, emotion or this way of me relating to you is negative. It's harming me. And I'm going to drop that as best I can. That's just more empowering. Yeah, but 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 personally, like if using my definition of forgiveness, why would we want to continue harming ourselves with our negative state? Or us. But see, you know, remember, forgiveness doesn't depend, like the other person doesn't need to know that we've forgiven them, right? It's an internal, we're talking about an internal process. And how we act in the world towards that person, that's not about forgiveness. That's about, like, how can I be skillful about protecting people? You know, so I, I hear what, I think what you're saying is we should relate to the person who causes, is causing harm in a way that reduces harm. I'm totally with you on that. And we should be pragmatic. Like, if there's somebody who's causing a lot of harm in our community, the best way to relate to that person is in a way that reduces the harm. But the forgiveness is an internal process that somebody does personally. It's an, in, an intra or interpsychological process where my heart is feeling, having insight that it's not helping anybody for me to resent this other person. So I'm going to abandon that resentment or that hatred for that person who's harmed me. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to be careful or I'm not going to try to stop that person from harming others. Right? You can forgive and still be very much acting in the world to prevent more harm from happening. 
So it may be that word just have different definitions of the word forgiveness. And there's a lot, and maybe this is what you're pointing to too, there are a lot of people who imitate forgiveness because they think they should forgive. And they get confused that forgiveness maybe means just having to allow people to be passive. Well, I have to forgive, so that means I have to allow you to be the way that you are. But, but you know, because of this commitment to non-harming, there's both a very assertive part of this training. Like, one of the ways, probably as much as the other way, we allow harming to happen is we refuse to act. It's through our not engaging life that we allow harm to happen. It's not so much that we hit, but we don't prevent hitting from happening. We don't do what we can do to, re to sort of reduce the harm in the world. So this commitment to non-harming happens both through assertive actions in the world and receptive, refraining, both ways. Yeah, it has to be quick, and then we'll end with this. And the way I think about this is much like a rattlesnake story, and that is, if you see a lion in the cage and that lion could be someone else, you know, we say, oh, how beautiful, how lovely. But if that lion gets out of the cage, you run. And so I think about that as having reverence for the animal that we are for the animal that everyone else is. You know, you're not foolish, but you understand. Yeah. Yeah. Nicely put. Thanks for that. And let's just take a few seconds and let go of the word. Take a breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.